Today on Focal Point with Pastor Mike Fabares. We are people that are designed to be servants. That's what God wants from us. He wants us to be serving others. And when he invests in our lives and gives us gifts and designs our life and gives us an education and a background and a family and health, he says, I, I want you to do something with that. What, what should I do, make money? No, that's not the bottom line. The bottom line is being a servant. It's no secret that the cost of living has increased significantly over the past year. But in times of economic downturn, it's still possible to make wise investments. So what does this have to do with the Bible? Well, today on Focal Point, Pastor Mike Fabares is helping us understand how to live a profitable life by God's standards. Pastor Mike originally preached this sermon in 1999, so some of the references in his opening illustration will be dated. The biblical insights, however, are timeless. Well, let's dive in. Money magazines this week came out with the top 40 under 40. These are the richest people all in their 30s. There's two kinds of young rich people, right? There's guys that inherit their money, and then there's guys that make their money. This list was full of guys that had made lots of money. Of course, there were guys like Michael Jordan on the list, right? He can dribble a basketball, get some endorsements, can throw a ball through a hoop, successful business ventures. He's worth right now, as a 36-year-old, $357 million. That's Pretty good uh, net worth there, I think. Got guys like um, Jeff Skoll, who thought it'd be a good idea to sell a few things on the internet. He uh, is president of eBay. He's worth $1.3 billion, and he's 33 years old. Uh, guys like uh, Jerry Yang, 30 years old, the uh, creator of the Yahoo concept, finding stuff on the web. He is worth right now $3 billion or the ultimate in the young rich kids who earned their money. A guy like Michael Dell, 34 years old, had an idea in college about taking the middleman out of buying a computer. He started Dell Computers. He's worth right now $21 billion, and he is only 34 years old. Now, those guys uh, have done something with their life, right? They have said, I'm going to make a few bucks. We're going to put our ideas to work. Most of them started in their garages. They started with, a, with an idea in a dorm room. They started with just some, you know, basic tools, and they got their idea going, and they turned it into a huge profits, and they did it in a short period of time. Some of these guys have been working on their business less than 10 years, and they're already billionaires. That's impressive, and it is an impressive group of guys, and no one can deny them of that. But if you really think from God's perspective at people that impress Him, I think you'd have to agree that's probably not God's top 40, right? <laughs> Those probably aren't the most impressive guys on God's list. Matter of fact, the people that impress God, though they're different than the people on the Forbes or Fortune list, uh, they share a lot of things in common. As a matter of fact, you might be surprised that they share a lot of things in common. They are committed to doing a lot with whatever they're given. They are, are tenaciously pursuing profits, perhaps in a different area, but they're pursuing profitable living. They make the most of their time. They don't hink around. They don't waste time. They're purpose-driven in their life. They know what they're doing. 
And those characteristics are shared on both the Forbes list and on God's list. As a matter of fact, there are so many similarities that the Forbes list might provide for us a pretty good example of what it might take to get on God's list, those that God is impressed with. I think that's exactly what Jesus was doing in Matthew chapter 25. The parable of the talents is an example from business. It is an example from the realm of money. And Jesus says in verse number 14, again it, that is the kingdom, will be like a man going on a journey who calls his servants together and entrusts his property to them. To one he gave five talents of money. That's a lot of money, a talent, thousands of dollars. To another, two talents of money. And to one, one talent, each according to his ability. Then he went on a journey. What does that mean? He just left them to do what they were going to do with their money. He went away. He wasn't going to micromanage them. He was going to let them take this money and do whatever they could do with it. Verse 16. The man who had received five talents went at once and, underline it, put his money to work, and he gained five more. So also the one with two talents gained two more. They both doubled their money. But the man who had received one talent went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. And the man who had received five talents brought the other five and said, Master, you entrusted me with five talents. See, I've gained five more. And his master replied, here's that favorite phrase of the Christian, the longing of every believer, I hope, who wants to appear before God in a pleasing way. Here's the phrase. Here's where it comes from, from the middle of a parable about money. The text reads that the master responds, well done, good and faithful servants. You've been faithful in a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Then the man with two talents came and said, Master, you entrusted me with two talents. See, I've gained two more. And his master said, That's terrible. That guy's got ten. Now you only have four. What's with that? What's the problem here? Couldn't you make, you know, ten talents out of this? No, that's not what he responds with. As a matter of fact, the principle here is to whom much is given, what? Much is required. The man with two talents is also praised with the same exact phrase, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. You know the rest of this, don't you? Verse 24, the man who received one talent came in and said, hey, I knew you were a hard man, harvesting and profiting where you had not sown and gathering where you had not scattered seed. So I was, what? I was afraid. I didn't want to risk it. I mean, what if I lost it? What, what, if, I, what if I didn't produce, uh, you know, some kind of profit here? I, I just thought it would be best if I just went out and, and hid the talent in the ground. No, see, here you go. Here, here's what belongs to you. Here's your talent back. And the master replied, a very shrewd, conservative approach to living. I appreciate that very much. Thank you for the talent. Is that what he says? Uh, no, not hardly. Response of the master is, you wicked and lazy servant. You knew that I harvested where I had not sown, gathered where I hadn't scattered seed. Well, then you should have put my money on deposit. At least with that, you could have returned some kind of interest. So take the talent from the one and give it to the one who has ten talents. For everyone who has will be given more, and he will have an abundance. Whoever, has, whoever does not have, rather, even what he has will be taken from him. Throw the worthless slave outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Bottom line of this parable is that we need to recognize that we are an investment. Do you recognize that? 
The things that God has done in our lives are not just tokens of his love for us. They are deposits in our lives to see what we'll do with it. God blesses us. We, we learn the songs, count your many blessings, right? Name them one by one. We sing about his grace. We sing about all that he gives us. Do you know that he gives it to us not just so that we'll have it and enjoy it. He gives it to us to see what we're going to do with it. And he looks at us and says, what kind of profit can these people turn? And the Forbes list and God's list is all about profitability. The bottom line is different. I recognize that. It's not about making money. It's about something very different than that. But the bottom line is profit. And God wants to see if you can take what he has given you and turn a profit. Can you live a profitable life? Because you are an investment and he has invested in you. Well, what is the bottom line? What is the goal? If he's invested in me, giving me good health, give me a good family, give me a good job, good education, a few smarts, you know, I, 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 what am I supposed to do with that? Second Samuel chapter five. Let's learn a few things from the life of King David who reaches a place in his life where the investment is expecting a return. God is saying to David, now I wanna see you do what I have orchestrated and designed every aspect of your life to lead right up to this passage. I want to see you do something with it now. It's a great passage. 2 Samuel chapter 5, you know the context if you've been with us. David anointed the king long time ago, but yet to realize the power and position of the throne. He is not yet doing what he had been designed and born to do, but now in this passage, after years and years of waiting and years of turmoil and years of struggle and years of hardship, in verse number 3, of 2 Samuel chapter 5, the Bible says, all the elders of Israel had come to the king, King David at Hebron, and the king made a compact with them. And look at these words. This is critical. It says, they anointed David king over Israel. It just lays there on the page. It seems like a nondescript little set of words. But if you've been with us, you recognize that it has been 21 years since Samuel had said to David, you're going to be the next king. He'd spent his childhood as a nobody, the son of Jesse, running around in the field, not even thought of when Jesse called the men together, his boys together, to be seen by the prophet. He was out in the field, not even, not even recognized as a, as a potential anything, shepherding sheep. Then, told he would be the king, he was brought into the, into the court of the king, King Saul, and thought perhaps he would step right into the throne room and grab the scepter and be the king. But of course, God had a different plan for him. He was going to send him to school, so to speak. Saul turns on David. David goes on the run. He becomes a fugitive. He lives in the desert. He knows all the caves, all the cheap motels all over Palestine because he's been a fugitive, hated by the king and his men, a price on his head. Oh, finally, he gets a chance to rule. King Saul is dead, but Ishbosheth has been named the puppet king of the north, and so he has a split and splintered, divided kingdom. It's full of civil unrest. And for seven years, he ruled in a half-hearted manner. Oh, he wanted to be king, but the circumstances just didn't allow it. Verse 3 says, finally, every single obstacle out of the way, David is now the king recognized as such. It was the great thing that God had designed his life to accomplish, to be a king. What's that all about? Interesting phrase at the bottom of verse 2, if you look at this passage, that the people recited the well-known prophecy that came through the prophet 
about what David was called to do. And here's the words of God. It says, and the Lord said to you, bottom of verse 2 I'm reading from, you will shepherd, circle that word, my people Israel, and you will become their ruler. Now, ruler is the title, and I understand that's what they call him. He's the king, he's the ruler, but shepherding is the job description. Now, if you're David and you knew what it was to be a shepherd, when you hear that word, you're not going to be too excited. I know what shepherding's all about. I don't want to be a shepherd. I want to be a king. I want people to come in and say, your majesty, your highness. I want ladies to you know, put olives in my mouth and wave palm branches at me. I want people to come and throw their tax money at my feet. I want to be the king. That's at least what I would think. And God says, no, the job description of the king, at least in Israel, will be shepherding. Do you know what shepherding is all about? I don't know. I've had minimal contact with sheep, but the contact I've had getting to know these farm animals is that they're rotten, lousy, dumb, bullheaded, stinky, foolish animals, and I wouldn't want to be in charge of a group of them. You know what I'm saying? It doesn't seem like a lot of fun to roam around on the countryside and feed them and take care of them and when they wander away to bring them back and to help them and nurture them and woo them and care for them and just forget it. Leave that to some little you know, kid out there who needs a few extra bucks. Don't make that the job description of the number one slot in the kingdom. And yet that's exactly what God does. He says, I want my king to view his job as a shepherd. And when a shepherd shepherds, he realizes his life is not his own. It is not about the sheep sitting around lauding and hailing the wonderful shepherd. It's about a bunch of needy people that need direction and help and feeding and attention and care and concern. And so he's called in a very real sense to be a servant to these people. Now, in the modern mindset, that isn't much of a job description. But in God's economy, if you've made your way through Sunday school and have any sense of biblical priorities and virtues and standards, you understand, don't you, that at the top of God's list is the virtue of being a servant. It is not at the top of the list in the world, but it is at the top of the list in God's mind. As a matter of fact, the shepherd concept of serving a group of sheep is the word that God chose in Hebrews 13 to call his own son. He is called the great shepherd of the sheep. As a matter of fact, Jesus said in Mark chapter 10, as the people stood around, he said, you want to be great? If you want to be great? You really want to be great? If you want to be great, then you need to be the, what? Servant. And if you want to be first, you need to be last. And if you want to be some, some great ruler, then you need to be the slave. And then he says on the heels of that passage, verses 44 and 45 in Mark 10, he says, you know what, guys? Even the Son of Man, and that had a lot of lofty tones, overtones in the minds of a Jewish person who understood the book of Daniel. The Son of Man. Wow. He said, even the Son of Man, the Messiah, did not come to be served, but I came to serve. Give my life a ransom for many. Romans says it this way. Jesus didn't even come to please himself. That's a huge priority in the Bible, servanthood. And it is the goal of the number one slot in the kingdom. As a matter of fact, in the New Covenant age, God appoints people to be leaders of his New Covenant church, this band of people called the, the, the church, the bride of Christ. And he says, I want the leaders to be called what? What's the word? Pastors, right? You know what pastor is? It's a nice little English camouflage of the word shepherd. And you know what that means? Nothing really brilliant and exciting. <laughs> that means caring for people, meeting their needs, being a servant to the people. And the Bible is very, very clear that the top slot in his mind is to serve. It is the purpose 
of being called into the body of Christ, not just for ancient Mesopotamian kings and not just for seminary graduates who pastor churches. But let me show you as you keep your finger here and turn over to 1 Corinthians 12, it is the calling and job description of every single person who names the name of Christ. You are called to be a servant. And once you find 1 Corinthians 12, and based on this simple principle of David being called to rule, but uh-oh, being called to be a shepherd, that's the real issue. Would you jot down on your outline, if you're taking notes this morning, that that's what we really need to come to grips with? The first thing we need to know is that we were, as my grandpa used to put it, we are saved to serve. Or you can put it this way, we are people that are designed to be servants. That's what God wants from us. He wants us to be serving others. And when he invests in our lives and gives us gifts and designs our life and gives us an education and a background and a family and health, he says, I want you to do something with that. What, what should I do? Make money? No, that's not the bottom line. The bottom line is being a servant. Serving is what it's all about in God's economy. And it's not just for kings and it's not just for pastors. It is for everyone. If you'd look down in this passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Look with me at verse number seven. It says, now to the Bible school graduates, the manifestation of the Spirit has been given. Is that what it says? No. Now to gifted speakers and singers, the manifestation of the Spirit has been given. Now correct me if I get, get this wrong because my eyes are a little blurred right now. I can't really see the passage, but I think it says, now to most people, the manifestation of the Spirit is given. No. What does it say? Now to each one. Well, darn it, then that would include you, <laughs> wouldn't it? Now, to each one, a manifestation of the Spirit. What does that mean? That God has in some way manifested himself in us. He has given us what he's given us. He's been good to us, kind to us. He's been gracious to us. The Spirit has been good and kind and gracious to each one of us. For what purpose? For the common good context here is the church, not the community, not the world, not the nation, not the city, not the neighborhood. The common good, the target is God's people. Just like when David was told, you shall shepherd my people, Israel. What's the point? We are called and gifted and trained and blessed in whatever ways that we are so that we would become servants of the body of Christ. That's your calling. No, 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 you don't get it. I, I work for, for Edison or I work, you know, I work for this insurance company. That, no, that's my call. No, no, no. Your calling is to orchestrate everything in your life, whether it's your secular work or your employment or your skills that you learn there on the job or whatever your background or your strengths or whatever it is. They all need to be orchestrated ultimately if you want to make God's list at least of productive people. We need to recognize that our whole life is designed to serve the body of Christ, the bride of Christ. That's what it's all about, the bride of Christ. Think about that. How well do you think Christ wants to treat the bride of Christ? Now, some of you are saying, I'm a bride and I don't get treated too well, but you were before you got married, weren't you? <laughs> and in the whole analogy of God, he wanted to make this clear to us. He made it clear that the analogy of how much he cares and loves and wants to bless his church is just like blessing this fiance, this gal that we're committed to prior to the marriage, because the marriage in God's whole analogy here is when we'll see him face to face. So we haven't quite gotten married yet, but Christ loves his girlfriend, okay? <laughs> and the church is his girlfriend. And how 
set, dead set were you guys on pleasing that gal before you got married to her? Think about that. You were nuts. You were stupid. You were crazy to make her happy, right? You would do things that you haven't done since then, right? To try and show how much you cared for this gal. And you know what the Bible says? That's God's attitude toward his bride. And he's looking for people to enlist to be good to her. Think about that. And he says, would you be good to my bride? I've given you what I've given you. Every good and perfect gift comes from above, right? Comes down from God. It is, it is grace. If you want to jot another passage down, it's a good one to look up later. 1 Peter 4.10, he says, each one should use whatever gift he's received to serve others, being faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. What's that mean? You're gifted to do one thing, I'm gifted to do another. God has done things in your life that he hasn't done in mine. And all those things he's done in your life, you need to use to try and benefit the girlfriend of God. Put it that way if you have to. God's loving, desperately wanting to bless his church. And he wants to bless his church through you. The question is, what kind of investment are you for God? Some of you play the stock market, right? You put, put money on different stocks. And God's got a portfolio. We're it. <laughs> and he wants to use every single investment in his portfolio to make some kind of great return to bless the church. Hmm. I had a friend of mine who... Uh, I met, very unique, very successful businessman. He realized that all that was pretty much futile. And he thought, you know what? All of this needs to be used to try and benefit the church. And he's not a pastor. He's a layman. He's got his secular business. But his focus is on blessing the church with what he has. Not just financially, although he does great things and he's wonderful in, in being generous with his cash. But he gives all of his energy, his attention, his time, his focus in trying to see how he can bless and serve the church. And when I first met him for the first time, he had a t-shirt on and it said X100. I thought, X100? What is that about? What kind of cryptic thing? You're weird. What does that mean, X100? And he said, you know, the parable of Christ about the seed and the sower. He said, some bore fruit, some 30, some 60, some hundredfold. He said, I want my life to produce a hundred times. I want my life for God and everything he's poured into me to produce hundredfold. Now picture this guy. He was probably, he's probably, he's probably is now 55 years old and he's wearing a white t-shirt with black letters on the X100. And he says, I just want to keep in mind that God has invested in me and I want to make a good return on God's investment. Do you have that attitude in your life? You're listening to Pastor Mike Fabares on Focal Point, and today we're learning about God's investment in us. You can listen again online anytime when you go to focalpointradio.org. Look for the sermon called, Doing Your Best to Live a Profitable Life. Well, whether today is your first time listening or you faithfully tuned in since our first broadcast in July 1998, we're so grateful you've chosen to spend time with us as we proclaim the depths of Scripture. At Focal Point, we believe the accurate teaching of Scripture is an anchor in the storms of life. That's why we exist. The attacks on God, the Bible, and Christianity are strategically intensifying, and we want you to be equipped with the truth so you can stand firm against a world that corrupts and distorts. If you're in a position to stand with us in partnership this Christmas season, we invite you to become part of our team of Focal Point supporters with your prayers and donations. Your support helps us pay for airtime on more than 800 radio stations and online outlets, produce our daily program, and facilitate audio streaming for more than a million people each year. Our partners also enable us to operate a lean ministry and provide a high level of service to our listeners. 
thank you for your commitment to relevant Bible teaching. To make a donation, call 888-320-5885. That's 888 320 Or give online at focalpointradio.org. When you send your gift today, we'll mail you a copy of Kevin Zuber's book, The Essential Scriptures, as our way of saying thank you. You'll appreciate having this Bible study tool by your side as you go deeper in God's Word. You can also write to Focal Point, Post Office Box 2850, Laguna Hills, California, 92654. We're so incredibly grateful for your support. But even if you can't give today, it's still a great encouragement to know you're listening. And when you get in touch, we'll send you a free booklet called From Creation to Bethlehem. Call 888-320-5885. Well, I'm Dave Drewy, inviting you to join us again Tuesday as we continue learning about God's investment in you, right here on Focal Point. Pastor Mike here. You know, it's an honor to be with you every day, helping you explore the depths of Scripture. But I want to be clear, no amount of Bible knowledge is ever going to save you be sure where you stand with God. Get in touch with us. We'd love to pray with you and for you. Visit us today at focalpointradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you. Today's program was produced and sponsored by Focal Point Ministries.